Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Learning Future podcast. Today, we're speaking with Dylan William. It's fantastic to have you here, Dylan. Thanks for joining us. You're welcome. Look, uh, you know, I've been following your work, like many of us in education, for, for many years now. One question that we begin with here is, what's something that you're learning right now? What's kind of at the forefront of your mind in terms of your own development? I think at the moment, my major learning is around trying to figure out the impact of artificial intelligence on education. For a long time, was very kind of dismissive of what it could do. Mm. And so I think that what I'm trying to figure out now is to what extent we can control the tendency of AI to confabulate, to hallucinate, and make mm-hmm. up stuff, and make it genuinely useful. And so that's what I'm trying to get my head around now is just what are going to be the productive uses of AI in the next, say, five to 10 years. Interesting. Dylan, what what do you think? I mean, as our work at the Learning Future and and your own, really, you know, it's how do how do we ensure that the outcomes are being met in these education systems? And perhaps more of a transformation agenda is the orientation that we have, rather than the improvement of the old model. Is is your view that we are now at this tipping point where generative AI and large language models will just like in some ways you're you're the assessment guru, you know, clearly that's it's challenged some of the traditional summative assessments. In any case, um, I'm not what, sure they are. I'm not sure they are. Interesting. So I think that generative AI will be very powerful in terms of lesson planning, in terms of objectives, you know, just making those kinds of things that teachers are often required to do, they'll be much easier. Yes. Um, I think that they will basically kill homework or assessed homework anyway. Interesting. Uh, as Tyler Cowan, the economist, says, you know, homework is dead. Yeah. Because right. there's no way of knowing who did it. Yes. But the thing is actually quite simple. You set the students a chapter to read, and then you actually have a class discussion. You <laughs> quiz them about the main points of the chapter when they return to the classroom. So I think that the traditional model for homework, where you grade what the students mm. bring back with them on paper, is dead. But what they bring back with them in terms of what's in their heads, I think, that's going to be very powerful. And... The reason I'm very skeptical about assessment yes. is because... We will certainly be able now to come up with some very sophisticated uh, simulations, just put students in an environment. But there's a fundamental limitation in the technology. So people love authentic assessments. Isn't it great to get students students doing things that are real? The (laughs) trouble is, how how well students do on those tasks Mm. depends on whether they were lucky in the particular task they were assigned. Right. And so this is what's called um, a task performance interaction. So, and this goes all the way through from primary school all the way through to medical training and medical licensure. If you give people an authentic task, whether they were lucky in the particular task they were given matters more than how good they are, how hard the task was, or who did the marking combined. Interesting. There's some fundamental limitations of of the reliability of these assessments. You know, we're promised that these AI bots will Mm. diagnose students' strengths and weaknesses. But they're not going to be very, very useful because we've estimated that you probably, for, say, secondary school mathematics, you would need to know 300 different things about a student to optimize instruction. Right. There are 300 little skills that they need that you need to know about in order to design the most effective instruction. And to get accurate data on each of those 300, you probably need 
probably 30 items. So you're talking about 10,000 assessments just to be able to do good diagnostic um, uh, mapping of students' competences. And I don't think that's ever going to happen. So my mm. my strong belief yes. is that the assessment part is, is not going to change that much. The good news is we are going to be able to get assessments being scored by machines quite accurately. I don't know if you know this, but computers are already as accurate as human beings are at marking essays. Yeah. And that sounds impressive until you didn't realize how bad humans are at this. <laughs> Good point. And, and so, um, you know, I think we are going to be able to have much more authentic assessment, but we're going to need a lot more of it before we actually get a, a robust reading of what that student is capable of, because we need to test them in different contexts. So, so my view is it's going to make much more of a difference to the teaching side than mm. it will to the assessment side. Fascinating. So, you know, you've been talking, I guess, a bit about, I mean, we are in this hype cycle always, Dylan, with a new technology that's come through. And so, oh, really? you know, right at the top of the curve, you know, haven't got to the trough of disillusionment just yet. But I, I do wonder about some of some of your your thinking and the team's thinking about, I guess, I, I would like to talk about the positives around the teacher workload side in particular, yep. you know, there's teacher crisis happening elsewhere. But before we get to that, I just wonder about the pitfalls specifically that you see with these these types of technologies. I mean, we, we know the, the Center for Humane Technology, for example, they spoke about the social dilemma. They're talking about the AI dilemma. Do you see some kind of more macro impact on kind of the cohort of young people, of even cognition itself, now that's been kind of everything's being augmented in some ways or, you know, automated and, ev you know, every consulting, large consulting organization, BCG, McKinsey, everyone's talking about hundreds of millions of jobs really transforming. What's your kind of macro view before we go into kind of the yeah. school view? I think you have to think, carefully about what the, those people are actually saying. So the latest estimates from a McKinsey report, I think, was that something like 30% of the jobs that are currently being done aren't going to be affected at all by AI. Right. Um, a small number of jobs are going to be completely eradicated. Uh, I would say something like 35 to 40% of the work currently being done is going to be done by AI. Right. But... It also generates extraordinary opportunities for the people to do other things. And so for me, the story of technology is not that when you actually have machines doing humans work, that humans are left to do nothing. They're left mm. to do other things that are more interesting and more exciting. Mm. So I don't see um, this lump of labor fallacy that people often talk about. Yes. There's only a certain number of jobs to go around. Yes. I think we'll find new things for those people to do. And because the machines will actually allow us to be more productive, we'll be wealthier and we can pay for more of those kinds of things that, that currently are only enjoyed by an elite. Yes. You know, that, 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 is the, that is the 2000 year story. Yes. You know, when, when Henry VIII was around, he had somebody getting up at three o'clock in the morning to light a fire in every room that he would be walking into <laughs> during the day. You know, he enjoyed a very comfortable standard of living um, interesting and very and very few pe other people did yeah. now you know we, most of us can enjoy that kind of standard of living so what i see what i see technology is doing yes. is giving to most people what elites have enjoyed for if not forever for a, certainly for a very long time oh fantastic yeah I, I, what i'm curious about in that dylan uh is how you know, I think I think there's been the promise of technology being this great equalizer for a long time, and clearly it has. You know, if you look at Stephen Pinker's work or others saying, you know, the world in, in particular um, is better off now 
you know, in general than it has been previously. Yeah. Not, notwithstanding, you know, meta crises, etc., like climate. But I, I wonder about like what's the missing piece here? Because if technology had done that, you know, even Jules Verne was talking about all this. You know, all the kind of a past futurists have said, eventually we'll only need to work ten hours a week, and because, you know, the increases in pro- production capacity, you know, the industrial revolutions, plural, means that you know we'll be actually be able to do what education should be for, which is, you know, how to spend one's life well, including leisure time, not just in terms of productive capacity. So, you know, for me, that that piece is education, clearly. It's not not kind of a techno-optimist, we let the tech lead. It seems like that's the tool that helps with the transformation needed at a societal or at a system level when we're speaking about education systems in particular. What's, what's your sense of the absolutely essential elements now that we have this technology that I, I agree with you, gives us this opportunity to in some ways completely rethink and reimagine kind of the workforce and what work might be for um, to what's higher order, more fulfilling, you know, more meaningful aspects. The Gallup polls always talk about the disengagement at work, you know, as being astronomical and apathy being so high and nihilism on the kind of pointy end. I know this is a big picture question, but I think I really think this is kind of the nuts of it. And then we kind of talk about the way education systems are oriented. So what's your sense? Well, well, first of all, you know, Jules Verne, later, um, Keynes, Mm. Galbraith. Yes. They were all talking about, you know, we will be able to just do 10 hours work a week. (laughs) And they were right. Interesting. We would be able, we would be able to maintain the standard of living that the average person had in the 1930s on work a week. Fascinating. But what we've chosen to do is to work more and have more money to be able to do more stuff. Yes. And so that tells me something about humans. So I think that a lot of people enjoy work. They like work. They they, they like the, the community of it, but they also like the the engagement that work brings and work is dignifying and mm. work is meaningful in lives. So I'm very skeptical about our our the likelihood of people choosing not to work, say there's a universal basic income. Yes. Now, that said, you know, the Greeks, the ancient Greeks, the, the elite amongst the ancient Greeks, enjoyed the fact that they didn't actually have to work and they could spend their time disputing and thinking and drawing geometrical figures in the sand or whatever, um, you know, the, the, the enjoy the life of the mind. And we may get there. I just don't know. But mm. I'm just, I'm persuaded by this idea that given the fact that people could live, live much simpler lives and earn much less money, um, they've chosen not to do that. Mm. And therefore, I suspect that we will use the productivity to actually um, you know, do more stuff, have more things. The other thing to remember, of course, is that that stuff becomes sustainable because as uh, economists like Mark Andreessen and uh, Eric Brynjolfsson have shown, we actually get more from less. Mm. So your iPhone replaces a reel-to-reel tape recorder, a movie camera. You know, it, yes. it's incredible how the technology allows mm. us to have a smaller impact on the planet. Mm. I'm hoping that the technology will help us with nuclear fusion, for example. Mm. In which case, global warming is going to be um, uh, pretty much a non-issue in in, in fifty to hundred years' time. Because we'll actually crack those issues. We also have carbon carbon capture, and I think the technology will help us with all of that. Mm. So I'm quite bullish about the possibilities. But and this is quite recent, which is why I, you know, I, I collaborated with Aaron Hamilton and John Hattie. Mm. I am concerned about some of the negatives, and yes. I just think we're not thinking about them seriously enough. 
Yes. That's the problem. Yes. It's the it's the precautionary principle. Yeah. Um, and to use the the metaphor that um Nassim Nicholas Taleb uses, mm. if you're told that the average depth of the river is three feet and you're five feet tall, you think you're okay. <laughs> but if the average is three feet, but there's one bit which is twenty feet deep, then you're in trouble. So it's it's the kind of assumption that the world is knowable and predictable that yeah. i think is so dangerous that's why yes. i think the precautionary principle needs serious addressing even if we don't i mean i i don't see any prospect of banning ai mm. because even if people in the west agreed to do that there's there's no prospect of that happening in china or russia and so you know i think we we have to kind of do what we can to to get people to agree to limit the use on a global level, as we did with nuclear weapons. Yes. And even that hasn't been perfect because we've still got, um, you know, rogue states using nuclear weapons, uh, developing them at least. Yes. So um, that's I right. think that that's the challenge is the, uh, is the, it, it'll allow us to be much more productive and much more powerful. The question for me is what will allow us to do that, that they could, that the machines can't do. Mm. And so I think, we used to think that creativity was beyond these machines, but actually, they're yeah. pretty good at painting, that drawing. They're pretty good at creating Composing. music. Yes, exactly. Yeah. But, but what I don't yet see is any kind of generative artificial intelligence being able to improvise in a group with others, mm. listening, in, like in a jazz group, mm. listening to what other people are doing and riffing off that and reacting to that. So, you know, I do see that. For example, on the music side, yes. I hope that we continue to educate young people to play musical instruments so they can actually enjoy the social side of of of, of, um, of playing, which is to play with other people, particularly in an improvisatory way. Fantastic. Dylan, gosh, that's so brilliant. I could press many, many different buttons there. The, the precautionary principle, I think this move fast and break things mantra that was Facebook's initial mantra. Uh, yeah. is, is now has now been completely consumed by again this AI movement, and I think it's just going to be so fascinating. I, th I think your idea around, well, actually the parallels with kind of the nuclear disarmament, or at least the limitation of some of these technologies, which of course will be transformative and save lives and improve them hugely, but also might distract us um, from our own lives in some ways. You know, I'm I'm very curious about the in fact the, the ratio between consumption and creation, and to your beautiful metaphor, and and you know literal example of music. You know, this idea that the beautiful thing about jazz, it is emergent creation. You yes. know, it's constant feedback. Talk about formative. So constantly attuning into group flow dynamics. And, you know, even some of the beautiful work that we see around, you know, brainwaves actually also starting to synchronize in particular ways, which yes. is also what happens in high-performing teams in, in lots of different contexts. So, yeah, maybe more flow. I think, you know, I, I'm really interesting about how we architect for flow in particular. You know, that peak capacity but peak challenge as much as possible and surely some of these tools will get us halfway there gosh so good um how then dylan do we think about the kind of core elements for the education system of the future to your prompt and this is one i always reflect on is how how might we become fully human in this uh, this ai world right this increasingly in some ways disembodied world um where our cognition is being extended um by other tools you know what are those key features of of you know le beautiful learning organizations schools that where, where people go to convene um or do we all just end up in a kind of vr 
metaversity type model. <laughs> Perhaps. I mean, who knows? I mean, I yeah, think any, right. anybody who thinks they've got their the answers is just deluding themselves. But I go back to the stuff that was done in the 1970s and 80s on distributed cognition. Yes. So there's a very nice work by like Gabriel Solomon, um, who, you know, we talk about things like the the long multiplication algorithm. How do you multiply two numbers together? And the nice thing about that is it's what David Perkins calls person plus. Mm. You've got the you've got the person's brain, but then it becomes more powerful when you give them a pencil and some paper yes. and some ideas about how to actually organize that calculation. And I think the the whole idea of not just physically distributed, but also socially distributed cognition. I think I can see machines helping with that. Um, at the very basic level, I can th- I can see uh, software monitoring what students are producing at their on their laptops. Mm. Um, and you know, if a teacher wants to organize the kids for um, heterogeneous groups, mm. you press a button; it'll suggest some groupings for that. If you want to organize more homogenous groups, you want to put create some students who are going to really push each other at the top end. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's one of my concerns with mixability teaching is often the very, very uh, precocious students are yes. intellectually isolated. Yes. So, so you might want to actually put those kids in a separate group and, put, and push them really hard. Mm-hmm. And I certainly think that generative AI will be very helpful in helping, in helping you just, just come up with ideas to really stretch children. Mm. Uh, I think we're just learning really about prompt architecture. Yes. You know, people people give chat GPT a prompt and they see it and they think, okay, yes, so, so, so. But what's really interesting is you, if you iterate, if you go back in and now recently, um, I think within the last week or so, chat GPT has made it completely available, customization. So you could actually tell chat gpt and the, the example that OpenAI gave was that um what are the important things about that that people need to know about the moon okay that's mm. the general prompt. but you can tell it i'm a third grade teacher yes and so you can actually now interesting tell it what kinds of things you'd be interested in so you can short circuit that that learning that you get from the prompt and so I, I think that we can see we're going to see lots of lots of really interesting ways of generating activities, but I think we're going to have to keep the humans in a loop. Yeah. So, in the same way that the best chess player in the world is no longer a human, but nor mm. is it a machine, it's teams of humans working with machines. Right. I think that the best teachers are going to be people who are working with the technology to actually come up with ideas, but it's still the, the teacher who becomes the curator, if you like, yes. of the learning material. And select that. Yeah, I think that I think that task would re- work really well with these students, but I think we might need to modify it for these students. And I think that is is, a, is another very um, powerful use of the technology, provided the teacher is there as a curator rather than just delegating the the, the um, issue the issuing of tasks to the machine. Mm, brilliant, Dylan. I, I remember one of the graphs actually in that paper that um, Aaron, John, and yourself put together. You know, it showed I think the difference between a novice. A novice educator with novice AI versus an expert educator yeah. with with expert AI, we're talking two to five percent more productivity, and that's not surprising. I think one thing that we do forget is this: these AIs are trainable. They, you know, there are these large language models, and you can effectively spin up 
you know, multiple AIs in one and have them in kind of some kind of virtual avatar, so to speak. This idea of, you know, and this is this is a question I'd love you to focus on. You know, the, the role of the teacher, you know, shifting in this landscape away from kind of the instructor, the knower towards very much this like this architect of a learning experience, a curator in some ways of, you know, rigorous, high quality content, but ultimately competency potentially as as the goal of a lot of education systems. What's your reflection around the shifting role of the teacher, knowing that here in Australia, in the UK, the US, in many places around the world, there is just a complete crisis in terms of recruitment and retention of these wonderful human beings that are trying really to support young people to thrive in this uncertain world? Well, I think that the answer is going to have to be lower contact time. Mm. So I think in Singapore, in Shanghai, in Taiwan, Hong Kong, it's quite common to have classes of 40. Mm. And they do that in order to have 50% non-contact time. Yeah. So the typical middle school, secondary school teacher is teaching 13 to 15 hours a week. Wow. I think we have to get that in Australia and the UK and the US. Because the, only then is the teacher going to have the time to become competent enough with the AI moving at the speed it's moving. Yeah. Just to, just to just keep up with that. Keep up. Great point. And that means... Because I don't think the behavior of young people in schools in the US and the UK and Australia <laughs> is good enough, I think we are going to have to spend much more money on education. Mm. So I think a substantial proportion of the dividend from the increased productivity that AI brings is going to have to go to education. I, I think we probably need to double education expenditure. Wow. Um, in order to have our existing staff student ratios but 50% non-contact time for teachers. Yeah. Um, people always talk about the cost of education. They always point out that we haven't seen any um, any increases in productivity in yes. teaching. People yes. say the budget keeps on going up with the results don't get any better. But I keep on pointing out that it takes the same amount of time to play a Mozart string quartet today that it did when Mozart wrote it hundreds of years ago. And what's more, that you still need four people. <laughs> you know, there haven't been there haven't been any Great productivity point. improvements in yes. string quartets. Yes, uh, and th that's why the costs of education keep on going up. It's what William Baumol calls a cost disease. You can't pay you you can't index teacher salaries or mm. position salaries on the price of goods. You have to index it on average earnings, and because yeah. in most countries average earnings increase faster than the price of goods. Um. Opera, drama, theater will always increase faster than the rates of price inflation because of this cost disease, as Baumol called, um, called it. I think you have to face up to that. Yes. We're going to have to have an open-ended, increasing commitment to educational expenditure to produce the kind of citizens that will really uh, flourish in this world. Gosh, it's so good. And and your contention then, you know, because of course, when I was studying with with John Hattie um at University of Melbourne, this the you know, the whole conversation around class sizes is just still prolific, really. I mean, it's this one instrument, it's an interesting piece because people say I would put more money in, reduce the class sizes, but you're effectively advocating for the opposite, which is increase them. No, 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 I'm not. I, I, first of all, I think John's wrong about class sizes because he he, he mixes up two things. So the, the point is that class size reduction policies yeah. don't work, and he's right about that. 
But he's wrong to say that class size doesn't matter. If the same teacher is teaching a smaller class, yes, they'll get better results. They'll be even better if they get support and professional development in taking advantage of the smaller class. Yes. What John does is he looks at the studies that have been done. And the studies that have been done are the cheapest studies. Hmm. The ones where you don't reduce class size very much. Yes. And you don't give time to figure out how to teach differently. And so, you know, educational research will tell you what was, not what might be. And so I think we have to be very cautious about generalizing from existing research, especially when the existing research is is so problematic. And of course, the real problem with class size reduction is in most countries, it leads to a diminution of teacher quality. You need more teachers if you're going to reduce class size. Mm. And in most countries, when you reduce class, the teachers you're adding aren't as good as the teachers you've already got. Yeah. So you've got the class size effect, fight the teacher quality effect. And because the teacher quality effect is generally larger than the class size effect, the net effect of class size reduction programs is often to make things worse. Fascinating. But it's only because you're diminishing the quality of teachers. It's not because class size reduction doesn't work. <sighs> How, Dylan, do you understand this this question of what works? Because one of the quotes that I, I cite you very routinely on is that what, what works is an incomplete question. It's what works for whom, where, under what conditions. You know, there's all these qualifiers that we forget. And yet for some rationale, we have kind of completely internalized this idea of just, oh, we just do the evidence. We know what works. Just do that, teacher. So how do, you, how do we create the right nuanced conversation? I believe this is at the center of your work. You know, so that there is this sense of yeah. co-agency with so, the educator. Yeah. So, I mean, that's why I, I don't know if you've heard me talk about this, but I've developed five questions mm. that I think we have to ask of any educational research, educational research. Okay. Question one is, does it solve a problem we have? So we know that teacher subject knowledge correlates with student progress, mm. but only up to a certain point. If, you, if your teachers already got good subject knowledge, increasing it further won't improve student achievement. So right. the question one is, does it solve a problem we have? Question two is, how much extra achievement will we get mm. measured in months of learning per year, not yes. effect sizes? Yes. Because effect sizes vary too much across different contexts. Question three is, how much will it cost? Forget money, teacher time. Yeah. Opportunity cost is the single most important constant of educational reform. Every hour teachers spend on one thing is an hour they don't have to spend on something else. Mm. So how much will it cost in terms of teacher time? Question four is, can we implement it here? Mm. So class size reduction programs can work. They're expensive, but they can work if you have a plentiful supply of teachers waiting to be hired. Yeah. But they're disastrous when teacher quality is weak and and teacher recruitment is challenging. Mm. So that question four is, can we implement it here? Question five is, do we know what to do? <laughs> so telling people that if yeah, collaborative right. learning has an effect size of 0.4 is useless unless you know what it means mm. to do collaborative learning. And it turns out that most people who do collaborative learning don't do it in the way that the research suggests has a positive benefit. Mm. So I think one of the problems is we've tried to We've tried to synthesize or um, aggregate ideas yes. rather than programs. Yes. So I, I don't want to know what, whether teacher collective efficacy or uh, collaborative and cooperative learning works. I want to know, does this particular approach, this mm. particular program 
produce extra student achievement. And it comes down to something very simple. Most countries, certainly the rich countries, can probably find 25 hours every year for teacher professional development. Mm -hmm. So my question for every school leader is this. What use of those 25 hours a year will have the biggest benefit for students? We can wish for teachers who are more skilled, more enthusiastic, or whatever, but the teachers we've got are the teachers we've got. The question is, where are you going to go from here? And yeah. so it comes down to, what are you going to do? What use of those 25 hours a year is going to have the biggest benefit for our students? I mean, basically anything else is just you know, side notes, really. It's just, it's, it's not going to have an impact. Yeah. I was curious there, Dylan, how, how diplomatic you were going to be. <laughs> I take side notes as the reflection. Look, that's absolutely brilliant. I mean, the idea of, you know, this is a practice science. This is, this is an applied science. I think sometimes we confuse education and we, we kind of get theoretical and in some ways enjoy just, I guess, the consternation of disagreeing on, on these aspects as opposed to saying, you know, the reading wars, for example, is one such example, which I think is right. I'm always curious about. You know, people have such ideology and such a political right. kind and of frame I, on top. And it's often very, very unproductive. But I think we have to understand that, mm. you know, when people compare education unfavorably with medicine or with physics, yes. they usually have this idealized view of physics and medicine. Mm. So Andrew Prickering's book on the mangle of practice <laughs> shows that um, these physicists were designing these experiments but it was their technicians who were making them work. Uh -huh. Often this Nobel Prize winning physicist moves to a different lab, his experiments don't work anymore. Yes. Because actually it was the skill of the technician, of the craftspeople who got these things to work. So good. You know, we we know lots of the science of medicine, but what we can't yet do is make sure that people Boy, who prescribe antibiotics actually complete the course. Yes, that's a great point. That's and so... Whenever we compare education unfavorably with other sciences, we're always picking on the, the, the most scientific bits of, the, of those other practices. Mm. And I think that all sciences have these problems once you get down into the detail. Yeah. And I think that it, you know the world is complex, and it'd be great if it was simple. It mm. isn't, and that's why I think that the, the the time that teachers hopefully will be given will allow them to become critical consumers of educational research. They will actually engage with the research. They'll find out, but then they'll feel that they'll use those five questions that I mentioned, particularly yes. in, you know, does this make sense in our context? Will mm. it work with our parents, mm. with our students, mm. with our employers? Yes. And I think that is the way forward to give people time to just acknowledge the complexity of this. And so that's why, uh, you know, for me, I would like to make teaching something where people have the time to think yes. so that it becomes something that the smartest people in our country really aspire to do because they see it as exciting, intellectually challenging, yes. as well as being socially productive. Absolutely. Oh, that's so inspiring, I have to say. But you, but you, when you talk about the kind of the craftsmanship, um, you know, science, art, craft, the kind of this interesting convergence there. But what, what your view on the role of a teacher as a action researcher? Should they, you know, it's not it's not that they are. I mean, because, you know, this is often thrown around all the time. We're in an action research thing or we're doing a professional learning community approach or it's a PLT. You know, what's your sense around the role of a, because I don't know, it's, is it researcher necessarily? It doesn't That doesn't feel like the right frame at all. 
No. So basically, my definition of research is inquiry that is designed to transcend the context of data collection. So the purpose of research is that you do research in one context and you do that in a way that allows you to draw conclusions about different contexts. Mm. And I don't think most teachers need to be doing that. I think they should be engaging in a process of principled inquiry. Mm. They should be constantly striving to improve their practice Mm -hmm. by reference to the research. And some may wish to write that up yeah. Share with other, other practitioners. Some may wish to produce videos or whatever. Yeah. Some may wish to write it as a, a an academic journal article, and they should be encouraged to do that and given mm-hmm. the time to do that. But I, I don't think teachers should be action researchers mm-hmm. because you need a lot of time to develop the skills to be an effective researcher, to develop insights that transcend the context of data production. Mm-hmm. And so, for me, what I what I would like to see more productive partnerships between teachers and researchers mm. and the, for example the the first formative assessment project that paul black and i did yes with chris harrison and claire lee um we actually recruited some teachers we asked them who which classes would you like to try this out with what measures of effectiveness can we use what what, what data are you collecting on these students anyway what's the best comparison group and so for each of these 24 teachers, we did 24 mini experiments yeah. where we asked each teacher to bring their own data with them. And I sat down with them and we did a data analysis. You know, Interestingly then, I then used a technique that Paul Holland, a statistician, called a poly experiment. Right. I, I used effect sizes to yes. find a way of combining these. So I was, I was basically inventing research methods as I went. Right. That, that paper has actually been the most cited paper in the journal in which it was published in 2004. Right. And it, but it's interesting because a young researcher probably wouldn't be well advised to take that kind of risk of stepping away from the cookbook. Mm. You know, if you published, you, you, you do the, the kind of research that's easy to get published. Yes. Uh, I, you know, and I, I felt I was going out on a limb, um, but I didn't worry about that because I'd already become a full professor. I didn't have anything to prove. And so... You know, I, I think that we need productive partnerships between yeah. researchers and teachers. Yes. But to do that, we have to change the incentive systems in universities so that teachers, so that, sorry, that academics yes. get credit for the, for the kind of practice, for, for the kinds of things, the research studies that change classroom practice. I'm so glad you brought up incentives. I think, you know, we've this has been a very wide-ranging conversation so far, economics said. Um the incentives in education, uh, when you talk about student outcomes or, you know, achievement, what do you mean specifically? Because I'm really curious about... I never, de- I never define it. I never define it because I don't want to define it. Great. Because I want I want people to decide for themselves. Yeah, fantastic. So I have very strong views about what I think education should be about. But I've also learned that if I try to push those views on people who work in a very constrained system, mm-hmm. I'm going to have zero relevance uh... because they're going to say, I can't do that. Yes. So my for the last fifteen years, I've been asking teachers, "What do you want to achieve?" Right. Once they're clear about that, I say, "Well, here's some ideas about how you can do that more effectively." Yeah. So you know, I never tell teachers what to do because they're the, just the constraints they have to negotiate in their day to day jobs are so complex that I haven't got time to learn about how to optimize those for them. So I, I just say, you, know, "You decide what you want to teach," and we'll give before you, you can yeah. even begin. Yes. You need to tell me what you want to achieve, what outcomes do you value? Yes. And then I think I can help you. 
Fantastic, Dylan. Gosh, that's brilliant. Uh, two final questions. One, if you and I are sitting down having this conversation yep. in uh, in 10 years' time, what is what is your vision for the conversation that we're having? Can you know what is happening in classrooms around the world? The way that like systems have perhaps supported more of the human elements of learning, um, and all the humans doing the work. My vision is that we can actually change the education system so that the people leaving school at eight, eighteen, excuse me, at eighteen do so with the same passion and curiosity for learning that they had when they started at the age of seven. Mm. You know, we, we used to think we could teach kids everything they needed to know for the rest of their lives by the age of 18. We now know that's impossible. Yeah. They're going to have to continue to learn. And the one thing we can do that will really screw kids up is to extinguish that passion for learning that every human has. So for me, I think that, yes, we need high levels of achievement. We need high levels of skill in our young people. But we, we need to keep a broad and balanced curriculum. Yes. We, we can't afford for a demand for maths and science and English or mother tongue to squeeze out art and music and dance and drama. Mm. A broad and balanced curriculum because we have no idea. I mean, my favorite example of this right now is the, the top job in New York at the moment in terms of recruitment is a prompt engineer. Huh. These people who know how to write prompts to get the best out of chat GPT. Remarkable. They're walking into, they're working, walking into jobs paying $335,000 a year. Oh, my goodness. Who is getting these jobs? Not programs. Mm. Not programmers. English majors. Oh, fascinating. English majors of course. are walking into these jobs because they know how to actually use the English language to get the best out of chat GPT. We have no idea what's coming. The, the thing we can really do is, A, screw things up by killing the passion for learning and b screw things up by focusing our children's education narrowly because we think we know better you know five years ago politicians were saying we have to teach coding yes well, i you, remember that the new coding language is english yeah <laughs> that's brilliant i've never heard it put that way but that is absolutely true oh my goodness um dylan william jochen val it's been absolutely wonderful to speak with you um my final question is, what is, across this incredibly full, abundant, resonant conversation, what's a, a take-home message that you would like people to take with them in the work that they do across schools, as parents, and anyone that's contributing in this way from this conversation? I just think it's just don't lose, don't lose your enthusiasm. I, I don't know whether Winston Churchill ever said this, but he's attributed to saying success means going from failure to failure without loss of enthusiasm. The best teachers never give up. They fail because they want every child to succeed. Mm. And you never get to the point where every child gets 100% on every test or every assessment that you set. But if, as long as we keep that goal in mind, we never get discouraged. The teachers have a growth mindset mm. as well as giving much for their students so that you see how can I be a better teacher next month than I was this month. Just keeping on bouncing that just going forward and forward and forward, just never giving up because you know that if you carry on pushing that, you'll make a real difference in the lives of the young people that you serve. Wow. Dylan, thank you for this conversation. Thank you for the work you do as a researcher, advocate, communicator, thought leader, author. I mean, it's very inspiring just to hear you speak. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you. You're very welcome.